Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Minnesota comedian Dan Bublitz Jr. He's been doing stand-up for like 11 years. He started in South Dakota, worked in San Diego, and now he's in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dan hosts the Art of Bombing podcast, so give that a listen after this episode. It's really, really good. We had a lot of fun talking about comedy. Dan's going to be headlining the 11th On the Zoom comedy show on Saturday, March 27th. Seth Reddick from Cortland, New York, and Scranton's Angelia Petrillo are going to feature for him. The show starts at 8 p.m. Tickets are just 5 bucks. Available through Facebook and Eventbrite. Patreon members get into every show for just 5 bucks a month. Trust me, it's a good time. You won't regret it. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Yeah, sorry, I just... My fiance is coming. She's out of town, and so she was just letting me know she's on her way home. You know, it's a weird way to brag that you got a fiance, but that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> like, you start the podcast that early with a with a really hurtful dig, but thank you. Yeah, just like, hey, I've got a lady. <laughs> Other comedians. <laughs> that's a. I love starting a set with, yeah, I'm single. <laughs> you're welcome or i don't have kids you're welcome and everyone's like yeah you shouldn't have kids or <laughs> you know happiness at all yeah well i i've been that guy plenty of times <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones but i've definitely been that guy <laughs> <laughs> so i uh i appreciate you doing this uh it's, it's fun to have you here uh minnesota yes that's Saint Paul, where, minnesota where, yep that's where i'm based at right now i'm gonna let you guess this I've been to Minnesota twice. Uh, my best friend lives in Rochester. The first time we went there was for his wedding. And I wanted to do only one thing in town. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm 37 years old. So I was a kid in the 90s, a sports fan. Where do you think I went? Where's my one thing? You, you had, a, I, I'm guessing, one of the stadiums in the cities. Close. That would be. Uh, I went to Mickey's Diner. Oh, because, okay. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. the Mighty Ducks. Yep, Mickey's Diner. Okay, that makes totally tracks. Uh, they just actually um, had a had to have a fundraiser to stay open because really? of well because of the pandemic and everything and the you know the different uh, yeah. restrictions and laws and you know things that have been going on with the pandemic. They've had a hard time staying open, and there was just a, a, a GoFundMe that just just a week or two ago actually. So it's funny you talk about that. <laughs> Did they trump the fact that hey? You know, we're from the Mighty Ducks. Like, this is movie history. I don't know. I didn't actually, I didn't read too deep into, I just saw the headlines. I didn't actually look at their their fundraiser. I mean, they made their goal, like, right away. Because, yeah, right. they are they are a historic part of St. Paul. But I'm not originally from St. Paul. So right. I've only lived here for a couple of years now. So I don't know all the Minnesota history. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how much Minnesota history there is. I know that the Twins won the World Series in 87 and 91. And the Vikings, I think, have won to five Super Bowls and lost all five. That's, yeah, that's all probably I know. Accurate. I'd be surprised if you're right, if they actually made it to five. But <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a huge football fan. Like, like I was a sports writer for a long time. So, uh, you know, you kind of pick up things through osmosis. Like, I knew nothing about football before I actually got a job writing at a, at a newspaper in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, 
I need to watch football a little bit, pick up the rules. So what I did was I started playing fantasy football and my goal was to memorize every starting quarterback and every kicker because I figured if I can get every kicker memorized, I've got everything else. Like eventually everything's yeah. going to come to me. I'm like, cause who the hell wants to know who like, like Graham Gano, I think he's a punter, but like, like a player like that. Yeah. Most people don't cause they only, you know, kickers and punters only, you know, they barely play. <laughs> yeah. I had a, this is, this is kind of messed up. I, maybe this got me ready for comedy, but when I was working in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, I got like so many angry letters and like emails from parents. The, Craziest stuff is like, like I got, I once covered a college football game between Edinburgh and Lock Haven. Edinburgh beat Lock Haven 55 to three. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Not a great game. So like, like <laughs> I wrote about Edinburgh the entire time because like, Hey, they scored 55 of the 58 points. Let's write about Edinburgh. And I got an angry email from an Edinburgh parent who lived in Lock Haven because I didn't mention their kid who played long snapper. Oh my god! Like, I was like, they I scored even, fifty-five points. I don't even There's, know what a what is a long snapper. A long snapper <laughs> is a guy. A long, a long snapper is a guy who only gets in the paper if he fucks up the snap. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, I played a little bit of football in high school or in middle school, and then and and then when I was a freshman in high school, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't remember that position. <laughs> And then I there's a there's a kicker Robbie Gold. I don't know if you're are a football fan or pay attention, but he's been in the nah, league for yeah. a long time. So when I was working in Lockhaven, my first year, uh, Robbie Gold made. Uh, he's played at Penn State, grew up in like Lockhaven, Pennsylvania. Went to Central Mountain. Very good soccer player. Ended up kicking in, in football. You know, he was like a 50 percent kicker at Penn State, but he had a good leg, and he you know got some coaching from Adam Vinatieri. Signed with the Ravens. Went to the Bears. The Bears that year, his first year, they went to the Super Bowl. So everybody wanted Robbie Gold news. I'm like, okay, this is the only place in the country who wants stories, wants features on the kicker. So (laughs) So I almost got fired twice because of that guy's family. The first one, it was really like a three-person department, maybe two at the time. But we had an editor and me, the writer. This guy, his dad, complained to the paper, to everybody who would listen, that we didn't cover Virginia football enough. Lockheed in Pennsylvania is like six hours from Virginia. And uh, at least, you know, the school, his son was a punter there. And he's like, he's like, yeah, he had a, he had a 70 yard punt or something like that. And I was like, that didn't come across the AP wire. Like, I'm sorry, but the only way your kid is getting in the paper that way is if he screws up the punt. So (laughs) how about if we don't write about him, you're thankful because he had a good game. (laughs) And then, and then, uh, and I, this should have been like the time that like, this should have been the absolute uh, sign that I should have gotten out of journalism. I couldn't get an interview with Robbie Gold during a Super Bowl week. And my publisher, like, I just made make calls. He wouldn't call back. You know, he's talking to USA Today and, and the Chicago sometimes. Every, you know, mm-hmm. anybody that wasn't the Lock Haven Express that served <laughs> about 10,000 people. He was talking to people who mattered. So my publisher gave me an ultimatum. You either write your story on Robbie Gold with his quotes or you look for another job. And I was like, I'm going to lose my job to a kicker. This, oh, is, no. <laughs> this is this is a complete waste of all of my parents' money for college. So <laughs> this is a sign. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah. But I wonder if that got me, uh, you know, if that 
train me a little bit for dealing with hecklers in the audience or anything like that. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. You can let, you can let not laugh at my joke, and that's fine, but uh, you're not going to get me fired like a kicker. <laughs> yeah, you ain't got that kind of power. So how did you end up keeping your job then? That Now I'm interested. Oh, because nobody that. else wanted it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I <laughs> it was it was not a desirable job. Um, I think fair enough. Time, yeah, that time what I did. There's a trick to it in journalism. If you can quote the guy, it's not the greatest thing to do, but like you can quote the guy using like quotes from the Associated Press, and you can mm-hmm. say, you know, Robbie Gold told the Associated Press or whatever. But oh, and then gosh, I, gosh. I think I talked to his dad and you know the guy who really wanted to be gone and some business people or whatever. I forget exactly, but I got two or three quotes and then threw a quote from the AP and it was fine. But that publisher almost fired me because if I didn't do a story on one of his drinking buddies, kids, he was always pissed. So I'm like, this is not ideal. That does not sound like a great job. No, not at all. (laughs) Or a great person to have to work for. (laughs) No. So I, I I do want to talk about you though. I guess we spent the first 10 minutes talking about me, I guess. uh, (laughs) But I just did an interview with Zach Dresch from, I believe your native land. Yeah, Your native yep. land, South Dakota. Yep, yep. That is so, true. And, uh, yeah, he talked you up, so I assume that you're terrible. Oh, yeah, probably. So. If he talked me up, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, is that how I got on here? No, <laughs> no, no. No, no I, I, was, oh, I was completely man. desperate. That's how. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so, okay, so so how do you go from, I mean, I, I've listened to a couple of, uh, The Art of Bombing, I've listened to a couple of your episodes, and it seems like you've lived everywhere. Did you start <laughs> out in South Dakota? I did. I did start comedy in South Dakota. I've been doing comedy. 2021 will be 11 years. I started in 2010, uh, like September of 2010. And when I say started doing comedy, I mean, I did an open mic. Yeah. But yeah, I did. a. I, I just I went through a divorce and I decided that uh, after my divorce, I wanted to try stand up comedy because it was something I'd wanted to do for a while and I just never did because I was married and it just didn't seem like it was possible, especially in South Dakota. Cause you know, there, when you think of when you grow up in the Midwest, especially in a small, smaller rural area, your idea of what comedy is, is very diluted. Uh, you know, you only see what's on, you know, HBO or comedy central or, you know, whatever's on TV, but your idea to be a comedian, you either go to LA or you go to New York. That's what that means. So so growing up, like in my 20s, I just didn't think it was a scenario or a possibility for me. But in anyway, so I get divorced and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to try this. And I looked and I said, saw that there was an open mic in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where and I actually lived at the time in Watertown, South Dakota, which is about an hour and a half north of Sioux Falls. And they did this open mic on like Tuesdays and it was really just a bringer contest is what it was. And it was like a once a month situation. You know, they do this open mic once a month and it's a bringer contest thing. And at that time, I don't know what any of that stuff means. Right, right. I'm just like, oh, I got to go do five minutes and try to be funny. And since they since it was a monthly thing, I actually signed up months in advance like I could have went, you know, I could have started. Uh, I did their open mic in September. I could have started like in June, but I just was like, I'm not ready. I wanted to do some writing and try to figure things out or whatever. So I signed up for like two months in advance, two or three months in advance before I actually did it. Do you ever regret not going to that June open mic or, you know, starting earlier? 
Uh, not really, because uh, I ended up being more prepared. You know, a lot of people, they will do, they'll do an open mic and they'll bomb. It'll be terrible. It'll be one of the worst experiences in, in their life. And while now I'm not saying I crushed at my first open mic, but I didn't do terrible. I mean, it was fine. I mean, I think if I would have had more self-confidence on my first open mic, I probably could have been, you know, I probably could say I crushed, you know, but I... I also had a big fear of uh, public speaking and public performance. You know, like even in high school, I had trouble doing speeches in front of the class and anything that had to do with talking in front of people. So for me to do comedy, I had to overcome that obstacle. And so that first open mic, I was very prepared because I spent that two or three months writing, editing, rehearsing. I mean, I had friends that would listen to me do my set over and over again and kind of, you know, help me do the editing or whatever. So I was very prepared. I was just nervous for the the public speaking. And it shows like I still have the video on my YouTube of my very first open mic. And I like I keep it up there because it's a it's really neat to watch it every year. I like to watch it on my anniversary, uh, about my anniversary of comedy, just so I can see how I've evolved since then. And like I said, it was very poor quality video because a friend was holding the camera and, you know, I was very nervous and the material, not great. Cause you know, when you're an amateur comedian and you're just starting out, most of the subject material we talk about is terrible. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're trying to get a rise out of people. It's like, okay, well, how dark can I go? You know, yeah, uh, or you know, how you, dirty I know, or shocking. Well, I know that, like, uh, and you know, this is part of my personality. Like, I, I love talking about race, but I think what I really liked is, you know, I'm a big Carlin fan. I wanted to toe the line and see if mm-hmm. I can straddle that well. I don't know if I did or not. Like, I maybe the fact that I don't do that material anymore you know, is a sign that say maybe I, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't good enough. I certainly wasn't a good enough comedian then to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think like, yeah. you know, we, we try to emulate the people we love most. And so I, I tried and I'm kind of jealous that you do it that way, that you will save that and look back on it because I know that as a former journalist, you know, I refused, like, it'll make me physically sick to go back and look at my college newspaper work or my first couple stops in newspapers because I progressed so much as a writer and not that I'm the best writer in the world, but before I moved out of Maryland at a paper, you know, I'd won three awards, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm like, I had something behind me, but I would never go back and say, well, what did I write six years ago? Oh, like just the formatting, the style, the phrasing, you know, it was too wordy and a lot like comedy. It's like, I probably wrote a thousand words in 2008 on a story that really only needed 600 words, you know, like that. So by the time it was 2013, but when I left, I'm like, no, I could have written that story, you know, maybe deserved four or five paragraphs. might've, you know, I could definitely condense it or talk to people a different way, talk to more people. There's so many things I didn't like. I saw a, a set of mine that I did, I think nine or 10 months in that I really didn't mind. And like, uh, God, it was, yeah, I only saw it a few months ago and I thought, you know, some of those jokes are okay, pretty good. And then some are awful. So I don't, I don't know if I could watch an old video of mine routinely. Uh, so I think that's really cool. And I think that's a, it's a good benchmark for how, how much you've improved. Yeah. And that's what I, that's exactly what it is to me. It, it that's why I look at it because it's good. Cause even, you know, the longer we do comedy and it, you know, it doesn't matter what you achieve in comedy, you, you don't necessarily, unless you're, unless you get a big TV deal or something and, you know, you know, measuring success in comedy is very hard, you know? And, and so for me having that, 
definitely it's a good benchmark because then I have something to analyze against. It's good to have that data to be like, okay, this is where I started. This is where I'm at. I'm not done yet. I haven't, you know, accomplished everything I hope to, but at least I'm improving. You know, I'm not still that same comedian and my material and my writing and everything is getting stronger. So it, it really helps me focus more because it, you know, it motivates me to be like, okay, you are doing the things you need to get to where you want to go. Yeah. I think that's kind of why I do this and maybe it's just procrastination catching up with me, but I will revisit jokes once or twice a year. And I'm like, okay, well, like I'll, I'll do this for a week. Like I, I think the second or third bit I ever wrote or, you know, for my second or third open mic was a story about this woman grinding me at a bar. And, you know, it was a fun night for me. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> didn't happen before. It hasn't happened since. So I'm going to hold on to that one. But I like that joke a whole lot. It, the, the crux of it is that I am very stupid when it comes to women and, or anything really. But I compared her to Hitler twice. Yeah, women don't like that. I, I found. Yeah. So like, like I, I compared it to Hitler the first time, and then ten minutes later, I'm like, let me try it again. So like every year, I find myself rewriting that bit, and it gets better. And that's my gauge on how much my writing has mm-hmm. improved. Yeah. And, and so, that's something else I do, very similar to that. I, I'm always trying to evolve my material, especially as life changes. You know, like you have a joke. A lot of comics they'll do the same act, and they'll do it word for word for. 20 years or whatever. And while I have some material that I've done for probably five plus years, it's not the same joke it was five plus years ago because I'm always trying to try to evolve it. And, you know, whatever my life might be at the time, you evolve it to be more fitting for your current situation or whatever. Or like you said, you're improving the joke. So I'm always trying to like go through my material and just try to make a joke stronger and better on top of, you know, trying to write more and write new stuff. I'm always trying to rewrite. I don't think I honestly, and this is just my opinion, but I don't think there's a perfect joke. I think a joke can, you can continue to improve a joke. And no, I I think my favorite joke ever, and I might contest with you in this one, but it's so I gauge people on their response to this joke, but Norm Macdonald's moth joke Mm -hmm. from Conan. Have you ever seen that? I probably have, but I don't remember. Okay, so basically, it's you could do it like an improv thing, uh, like like an aristocrats type joke, and it's such a fucking dumb joke. You know, it's it's basically why did the moth go to the podiatrist's office because the light was on. You know, it's such a it's like a popsicle joke, but the way Norm says it, he takes four minutes to construct this story where he's on the cusp of boring the hell out of you, but he brings it back, and and that joke for me. If you had the attention, so maybe it's not the perfect joke. It kills me every time. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's one of the few jokes where I can I can rewatch it over and over and over, and, and it never loses a fastball. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, well, I, I and think- maybe maybe I should rephrase and not necessarily say there's no such thing as a perfect joke and change the wording to a bit because yeah, I'm yeah. more. I'm more of a storyteller. So when I'm thinking about jokes and writing and I'm thinking more as a bit, cause I'm always, you know, I write, you know, I tell a story, but you punch it up. So you have setups and punches within yep, yep. that story or whatever. Whereas, you know, you're right. There are jokes that are just absolutely perfect. A lot of one liners fit that category where it's just a simple setup punch. And there's, I mean, you, 
there's probably no way to rewrite a joke like that over and over again. No, especially if it's like nine <laughs> words. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's there's, there's no point it's off more about trying different ways to deliver it. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I mean, when you started, because you've been doing it, what, you said 11 years almost. Almost 11. It'll be 11 years this, yeah. In September. How, how have you evolved? Like, I mean, did you start out as a storyteller, a one-liner? Did you did you go through phases? I did. I mean, I tried a lot of different things, you know, like I tried. Uh, I was, I've always been more of a storyteller. I think that's something that was true all the way through. And that's just, I feel like it's because I'm more of a long winded person. Uh, but I also talk, I get that. Oh, I get that a lot, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone. No. Uh, a lot of when I work on a bit, when I start thinking of a new joke or a, a new bit, it's very wordy to start. So that's where the editing and stuff comes in. But like the first time I tell a new joke, it's always more, way more wordy than it needs to be. But I started doing that way. Cause like when I wrote, my first set, I wrote it out like a, almost like a script, like a monologue. Like I had it word for word on the page or whatever. And they were, you know, it was more stories because I talked at the time I just went through a divorce. So I talked a lot of, a lot of my material was about going through the divorce. A lot of my material involved talking about my family and, you know, current situation and things like that. And my material, as far as themes go, I still talk about a lot of those things things not necessarily divorce but i talk about myself you know and things that happened to me I, I i try to be very uh personal with what i talk about part of that is because you know somebody can steal a joke and they can take the words from you but they can't take they can't take the essence of the joke if it's about you you know like i can say a joke about a situation that happened to me and the way i tell it it's probably going to be really funny and it's because there's going to be passion behind it because it really happened. It's a real story. There's truth behind it. Then you could take my same bit and go tell it on stage. You might be able to get some reaction out of it, but you're not going to be, it's never going to be that strong for you because it's not true for you. There's no truth into it. I, I could be wrong on that, you know, but that's just kind of my belief. So a lot of my material has always been, you know, interpersonal and I do, you know, some self deprecation, but over the years I have tried doing just being one liner comic, like I rewrote, I remember hosting a show for uh, a comedian, uh, Mike Baldwin was his name. And he was doing a show in, in Sioux Falls. And the guy that booked him was kind of a friend of mine. And he, he booked me to host the show. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try rewriting all my jokes, which was not very many, you know, <laughs> at that time. And I'm going to try to do them all as one liners. So I rewrote all my material as a setup punch and oh i bombed so hard <laughs> is that just terrible. because because they weren't good or because it was like not you i think part of it was is that it wasn't me i think a lot of it was because it wasn't me okay, i was yeah. trying you know i was trying something that really wasn't me I, th I think there was more than you know there was a couple elements one there actually wasn't a lot of people at this show you know there was only a handful of people it was not you know there was probably less than 10 maybe even less than five. I think maybe a couple people I knew the headliner, I think he, his girlfriend at the time was there and maybe a couple other people. So that wasn't, so, so that was an element of it. And then I think the material probably just wasn't strong either because I was only, I was less than a year in. So 
I didn't have strong material, you know, so it was like a combination, but definitely more of it was because that's just not who I was. Yeah, I know. You know, I've always been a storyteller in my real life, and <laughs> which is why I only have like four friends anymore. They're like, all right, dude, like. We'll be back when you have more material because you suck. Uh, but I, I've always done that. And like, I, I know that like, I like hearing myself talk, you know, I did college radio and, you know, I think anytime you go into the media field, there's a slight bit of narcissism in there. And oh, it's like, absolutely. okay, well, well, like people definitely want to hear what I have to say or what I want to write. Like, absolutely. Meanwhile, they're like, no, like we just, we want the classifieds, man. Like you're just in our way. But I don't know. I, I, I feel like, like I, Felt, always felt like the funny guy until until I got on stage. And then I was like, oh, no, like, <laughs> you assholes, you lied to me. What I did was I went on stage and told stories and not not necessarily like you had to be there stories, but like I just didn't have punchlines. I mm-hmm. like I oh, forgot. Absolutely. I um, forgot the you know, I listen to Birbiglia and I'm like, you know, if I change my inflection, they'll love it. They'll get the joke. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. That's how it yeah, works. For, a, yeah, that's how it works for Mike Birbiglia. You idiot. That's not, not yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I I definitely uh, you're not alone in that. We definitely are very, very on the same page because Mike Berbigula is one of my favorite comics, too. And listening to him like he's an amazing storyteller. And that's you You go up thinking, oh, well, he can do it. I can do this. I'm good at telling stories. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work for you. <laughs> no, so, so what I needed to do and like like I, you know, I, I'd watched comedians down here in Binghamton or over here, I guess I'd watch them and. They were getting bigger, you know, laughs out of shorter jokes. I'm like, okay, well, mm-hmm. maybe plus you can run through more material, it seems, you know, at least in your head by five minutes of one liners or shorter jokes. And because I write all my stuff out too, like word by word uh, or word for word, I don't necessarily deliver it that way, but that's how I remember it. So I get on there and I, I do a one liner, I do, you know, a short joke and I get a response, I get feedback. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how you do it. And then after probably about a year or so, I went back to storytelling, but I would write stories around these one-liners or Mm -hmm. the one-liners were, you know, my thesis statements, I guess. Like they would be there and like, okay, I'm going to build off this laugh. And that's how I was able to evolve a little bit. So I'm always curious as to, as to how people have grown. And, and since you've been doing it 11 years, it's like, I figured, okay, maybe you've had several transformations and saying like, maybe I got into a slump here. And, you know, I, I changed oh. something else, like developed a new skill set to get myself out of it. Yeah. Well, one thing I've always tried to do, and even now I sometimes try it, I definitely try to do new things and experiment a little bit with all types of comedy. I mean, I even, you know, I'm also, I also like to write poetry. I don't write as much poetry now. It's more of a, when I go through sad and depressing times, it's a good outlet. But I tried adding some funny poems into my material. I've, played around with music even though i am terrible at music like i've added little comical songs and experimented with that it, you know so i've tried different things i'm always trying to experiment when i can uh because i mean at the end of the day we're trying to find our stride and find our you know find your own voice but right even with those experiments a lot of times it ends up being that you can do it and it's funny but it's just not who you are and with you really i feel like if you really want to be successful you really have to be you on stage and i always feel like who i am on stage is very similar to who I am off stage. It's just a little more exaggerated. I mean, the only difference would be is how I dress. When I'm on stage, 
I dress a little nicer than when I'm not on stage. And but even when I'm not on stage, I do wear a lot of the same clothes that, you know, you would find me on stage. But, you know, but I also wear a lot more geeky T-shirts and things like that. But for a little while, maybe about a year or so, whenever I did a show, I wore a shirt and tie and I liked it. I felt like I was, I don't know, like the teacher in class, like pay attention to me. There was an authority Mm -hmm. there. And then, you know, uh, I don't know. I I, I got lazy one day or something like that. Maybe I thought I was typecast. I I forget what led me to not wear that anymore. But I remember going on stage wearing a hooded sweatshirt and I'm like, you know what? This feels better. And, you know, I I, I never wore a hat on stage. So, uh, you know, I I guess maybe first first couple of mics I did, but I never felt like I should wear a hat on stage. That's the one thing I, I really don't do. And you know, winter comes around, maybe, maybe I'll wear a beanie. I mean, the pandemic, you know, whatever. Yeah. Pandemic, yeah. man. I, I We've had an open mic going for since uh, July. So every Tuesday since July, I've worn mesh shorts or sweatpants or whatever. I'm like, fuck it. Who cares? We're in a pandemic, <laughs> baby. I don't give a shit anymore. So, but, yeah. but once we do ramp up again, I'll be like, all right, well, you know, I'll, I always dress like I'm from like 2002 anyway. So I'm like, give my cargoes and, and a punk rock T-shirt and a hoodie <laughs> and I'm good. So, yeah, uh, but that's the that's one that's thing I like about comedy, too, because it doesn't really matter what you look like as long as you're funny. Yeah, exactly. And that's something for me. You talk about evolution and comedy. I've evolved that way, too, just as how I carry myself on stage. You know, I believe I mean, I, I think we really have to be professional, but we also have to. There's more to just looking professional, but, you know, it's it's you have to be comfortable on stage. You know, if, if you're dressing up in a tuxedo and it just doesn't feel comfortable for you as a performer, definitely don't want to do that. But when I started comedy, I usually wore baggy jeans and a funny T-shirt. That was a mistake because I would wear T-shirts that were probably funnier than I was. And some of my jokes, you know, (laughs) so like that was something that evolved. And then as I progressed, you know, I started wearing, you know, I started wearing a button up and then I started wearing a button up with a tie untucked. And then I started, you know, wearing it tucked in and getting a little nicer. And then I went back to just having a buttoned up untucked shirt because that was more comfortable. And then and now I usually wear a sweater with a collared shirt. That's. Right. But I'm comfortable with it. But I don't wear like dress pants or slacks. I usually wear, you know, some sorts of jeans and, you know, dress shoes or whatever. But that also goes with that style kind of aligns with my character. I'm a very nerdy, geeky guy. I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I'm into, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. I read comic books and I do all these things and it really captures who I am. And so I'm comfortable in that when I'm on stage. Yeah, I'm always afraid of like, you know, with that shirt and tie thing, like like if I wear like I fall into a trap where, you know, and basically for the last 30 years or whatever, my life, you know, it feels like uh, I started wearing punk rock T-shirts in high school. And I'm like, OK, that's my uniform. Like I'll develop this uniform. So if I went back and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful I got out of wearing the tie because who knows, like I could have been the guy who wears a tie like that. That's how mm-hmm. people would know me. And I'd rather be known for the guy who tells an Arby's joke that doesn't land all the time. Like I'm much more comfortable that way. Sometimes it's not bad to be the guy that's known for wearing a tie because that means you're known. You know, there's that too. Like, because comedy is a business, and I study marketing, and 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 within different things, you you want to try to find a niche too. And now I'm not saying sell out and just do some hacking niche or whatever, but it doesn't hurt to have a persona that makes you stand out from everybody else. You know, I mean, and I don't, this isn't a stab at you, but it is a good example because you talk about wearing a hoodie. Yeah. 
all kinds of comedians wear a hoodie on stage. Right. Not a big deal, but you're not standing out. Even if you have a funny joke, unless it's a really funny joke that stands out from their material, you're just one of those comedians that wears a hoodie on stage. You know, just like I, I'm a comedian that wears a collared shirt and a sweater. There's a lot of people that wear that on stage, you know. So having something sometimes that makes you stand out more so than other people isn't always that bad. But I so, definitely agree. Having good jokes is ultimately the most important thing. <laughs> so what I think what I think you're trying to tell me is that when we get out of this, I should we, I should always be wearing a top hat and a who farted t-shirt. Exactly. That's what okay. I want you to All do. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. You will. <laughs> I've been waiting for years for somebody to tell me that exact thing. So I appreciate it. Thank you. It's like, but please, nobody listening to this, don't take any of my advice on fashion. I am not a fashion expert. <laughs> I will say this, though, and this is something that another comedian, a veteran comedian, told me going back to wearing hats on stage. Now, I used to wear hats on stage all the time, but I wore like ball caps or I wore like a golfer's hat, things like that. And you do have to be careful when you wear them on stage, because if you don't, you, you either want to wear them off to the side, which will end up kind of looking goofy, yeah, or wear yeah. them backwards because they block the light from your face. And that is uh, very important because sometimes a facial expression is what it takes to sell a joke, you know, but like wearing a beanie and whatever, it's not going to affect the light in your face, you know, which is good. So I had to remove a cat from my desk. I, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. Uh, my, my cat, I got one cat, Mac, who is like sitting on my hand, basically, or the mouse or whatever. And I, <laughs> whenever I podcast, I live in fear that he's going to run across the keyboard and delete everything. Oh, and God. he'll mute it. He'll do whatever. So like I have now kicked him off my desk three times. And uh, the last time was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I always wore a hat. Not on stage, but like for all of my life, I, I've wore, I used to wear a hat. And then when I started doing comedy more, you know, I, I was like, I can't do it. It doesn't it didn't feel professional for me. And then I would see like what you're saying, like we'll go back to Birbiglia. And there are jokes that he tells with his eyes and mm -hmm. with his with his, you know, he'll drop his jaw. And I'm like, oh, my God, like he got a laugh out of that. And Carlin uh, is as great as he was with those words. His facial expression, I mean, he's like Jim Carrey before Jim Carrey was Jim Carrey. It was incredible. So, yeah, you and then especially when you go to a place that has like, you know, not great lighting. It's like, like yeah, <laughs> what do you expect? You know, like yep. if, if you're like a like a back of a pizza place or, or a bar, like it's dim already because people don't want to look up and realize what they're what they're doing with their lives. Like, like mm -hmm. come on, like give, well, him a, give him a chance. No, and I don't know how you where you stand on this or how you feel about this, but this is something, too, that over the years I've kind of feel like. So when I started doing comedy, how I dressed on stage was how I dressed every day. You know, I always wore funny T-shirts or geeky T-shirts of some sort, wore jeans, tennis shoes, and I wore a nerdy hat of some sort. That was my normal style. And like I said, as my styles progressed on stage, as far as, you know, what I wear, now it feels like I'm getting dressed for a job, which then now puts me in the mindset that I'm here to work. I want to be funny, but this is also a job. And so I'm putting on work clothes now, which is getting out of trying to get me out of my, oh, this is just who I am every day. You know, so now it's like it's it's like my uniform, essentially. And I'm going to work to do a job, which is hopefully to be funny and make people laugh. Yeah. I dress how I normally dress anyway. Like it, it really is like cargo pants and uh, a hoodie or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really get away from that too often. What I have to 
be careful of, and I kind of regret doing this, but my Instagram is I had sex with Mike Peters. And it's based off a funny story from college. And when I signed up for Instagram, I was already a comedian. And I'm like, okay, well, this is good. Like, it, people will remember this. Then I fucked up because I was like, oh, no. When I produce shows and everything, when I go to bars <laughs> or venues, I'm like, hey, get a hold of me. And then I have to give them that name. I'm like, damn it. So I'm like, the Instagram is like the last thing I give anybody. Turns out it's kind of fucking important when you're trying to promote your comedy. And so, also, you can change your username. Yeah, I know. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, just to throw I, that I'm out married. there. I know. Like, I'm, I regret every decision I've made, but I don't want to change them. It's like, <laughs> like, I'm constantly in my way. <laughs> That's another thing, too, that I think is important. Because, uh, like I said, I do study marketing. That's something I'm very interested in. And branding is important. And I think it's important to, you know, you want to make it as easy as possible for fans to find you. And I, I see this a lot where a comedian will do like what you do with your Instagram. You'll have a funny name and it's great because you're a comedian, but then your Twitter is a whole different name yeah. and your whatever your TikTok is then additional, another name. And I think it's important to try to align all those. So they're the same. So that way you can just say, Hey, I'm this on so all social medias, you know, cause the branding is important, especially nowadays with social media. Like it's whether you like social media or not in comedy and entertainment is a necessary evil. There are a lot of local comedians that I work with who are not active on Facebook at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I understand if you're not active on Twitter, because it seems like that's, you know, you get news and you try jokes or whatever, but you don't get as much, at least I don't get as much traction. So, but to not have Facebook, I'm like, at a local level, man, how are you going to get people to your shows? How how are you going to promote yeah, well, it? And it turns, turns out uh, they don't. So mm-hmm. so it makes it really difficult. Like, like even doing this podcast, like it kills me that comedians who are on this podcast don't share the podcast. And it's like, oh yeah, what are you doing? Like, like yeah, I'm counting on you to help my numbers, you know, get a bump. But like, don't you want people to know about you and what you're doing? Like, isn't the whole game like to get more people to watch you and so you can go further? Uh, Even if you don't want to do this as a a career, you're a narcissist. Don't you want the attention? Exactly. It's like, why are you doing this if you don't want people to hear it? But at the same time, you know what it is? It is the narcissism. And even though, you know, because it's them getting their attention from you and your listeners without with minimal effort. Right. And that feeds into the narcissism. <laughs> and, and I wonder, though, if they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm Mike Peters. <laughs> People are going to see my name and they're going to listen. Like, they'll find me. They're looking for me. And it's like, no, you asshole. Like, your yeah. parents. Now, I'm really just speaking about myself, but your parents don't even want you. Like, they're, yeah, you know, like exactly. Like, <laughs> 37 years, I've learned that my parents, you know, they're like, you know what? We eat dinner with you every once in a while. We're we're good at that. Yeah, so. I hardly talk to my family. I get it. It's funny too. I'm just I'm glad my dad hasn't figured out podcasts. Like he's asked about it, and I'm just like, don't even bother, Dad. <laughs> my my parents are funny. I joke about them a lot. They're a lot more supportive now. I, I've only been doing comedy about five years, and when I they're both musicians, and I'm like, I was afraid oh, to tell them. I, yeah, you would think so. But I was afraid to tell them my dad is, you know, at the time he's like 68 or whatever. And the first thing he said is, how much are you getting paid? Or uh, what's 401k? And I'm like, I, man, I might get drink tips. I don't know. And, <laughs> but but I'm, I'm thinking, oh, they're, they're musicians. Like their, their performance, they, they went for art. They went to school for art. Come on. And, and nah, they're, they're like, but you know, I've gotten a little better and 
you know, before the pandemic, I was producing shows all over the New York area. So I was make I was paying my rent with doing producing and, and comedy. So mm-hmm. so at that point, they're like, oh, OK, this is actually something he can do and make it so we don't have to support him when he's, you know, 60. So yeah. like, I think <laughs> they, they were more on board with that. Well, and it's funny. I, I will. I joke about my dad a lot, but I'm very fortunate in the fact that my dad has been very supportive since I started comedy. <clears throat> he definitely had his reservations about it. And for me, you know, that was like one of the most difficult parts was telling my dad about that. I was, you know, wanted to pursue comedy because my dad, you know, he's a he's always mostly been a blue collar, hardworking, you know, got to go. You got to pay your bills. Very responsible with money and, you know, very conservative. And you got to have a job. You got to make sure you have your retirement. You got to make sure you have health care. You got to have your benefits. You need to be able to have good credit to buy a house, to buy a car, to do all this kind of stuff. So he's very, very responsible in that way. So for me to come to my dad at 32 years old and tell him, that I'm going to quit my job where I'm making a lot of money because I, I ha- worked for the same company prior to comedy. I worked for the same company for 10 years. So I like built my, you know, I worked my way up and I worked my way up into kind of middle. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it management, but middle management, I guess, yeah, yeah. where I had a decent position within the company and I made decent money. And I had all those things that, you know, in my dad's, vision is success. And I had to go tell him I'm quitting this job and moving to California to pursue comedy. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> and he still talks to and me, right? I, yeah. And okay, that's good. where I was surprised because that's, you know, I was very afraid to have that conversation with him. And he was like, you know, he told me his, his, his gave me his concerns. And then he said, but you're an adult. You need to, you know, follow your dreams. If this is what you really want to do best of luck. And he's been very supportive. Like when I go and and when I lived out in California and I would come through on tours and stuff, if I would produce shows in my hometown, he's always at my shows. He's always sitting in the front row and things like that. So I was very fortunate with that. He's been like one of my biggest fans and supporters, but it was still a scary conversation. (laughs) Yeah. I do wonder like why we dread that. I mean, it's like for me, like I was same age. I think I was 30. I I always forget. I was either 32 or 33. Uh, I guess I could do the math. I was, yeah, I was 33. So, <laughs> I mean, it took me like two seconds in the math. Uh, but I was, I was 33. <laughs> math I told him, yeah, math very hard. <laughs> I went to a state school. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was not terrifying, but it was like, and I don't think it's the same thing, but I like, that's probably the closest I'm ever going to come to coming out to my parents yeah, like, yeah. to tell them, okay, well, Hey, I'm going to put myself on display for, for all these people and kind of, I want your approval. And they're like, no, like you're, I, I probably didn't want my dad to say, you're not funny at all. Like, you know, like, <laughs> my mom's like, we've just been humoring you for like 30 years. So I wouldn't do it. <laughs> like, like we barely like you. Nobody else is going to. Yeah. My dad actually was at the very first open mic that I did. He he drove from from here on to come see me perform for the very first time. Wow. So, and, you know, for people listening, where he lived compared to where I was performing, that was like a two-hour drive. And so, like, even to come, like, in the middle of the week, because my dad would never take off work when I was a kid for anything. So that was amazing to me. (laughs) But, like, okay, so that was 11 years ago. Uh, You just recorded uh, a dry bar comedy special. Yeah, back in October. 
pretty fucking good. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, they've got a million plus followers or whatever. Does he look at that? Like the accomplishments and like, okay, yeah. Like he's got to take some ownership for it. Like, Hey, I was with him from the beginning. Like, you know, I've, I've been I his mean, biggest fan. He hasn't really said anything like that. Cause I don't think like he's not that kind of person. You know, the narcissism I think starts with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he likes to talk a lot. That's his thing. He talks a lot, but not like, and sometimes I just think he likes to hear himself talk, but like when he talks and has conversations, he's not bragging about things that he did or this or that, or, you know, I mean, he'll, he'll talk about things that interest him because he has a lot of different hobbies, you know, like he's big into cigars now and, you know, tobacco and pipes and just different things like that. So when he talks, it's about things that interest him or something that he read. So so, yeah, so he really hasn't said anything, but maybe, you know, internally, he probably thinks that, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And he has every right to. I mean, honestly, right. one of even uh, and this is one of I, I've, th- I've reflected a lot about this. And one of the greatest accomplishments for me in comedy and just to give a little back history between me and my dad growing up, my dad and I didn't get along very well. We had a lot of issues. When I was a kid, my dad was, uh, he had a short temper. He was, you know, he always worked. We didn't spend a lot of time together. So our relationship wasn't very strong as a kid and a teenager and things like that. And then as I got older, he mellowed out and our relationship, you know, developed and it got a lot stronger. And now it's really strong. We're really, really tight. But one of the shows that I did, I did a tour a few years ago. Well, I guess it's been five over five years ago, but I did a tour with some friends from San Diego and we did a show in my hometown and I headlined the show. My dad was there and he was in the front row and watching the show, had a good time, whatever. And after that show, my dad came up to me and he told me he was proud of me. And that was like the first time in my entire life that I think he ever said that to me. That's and huge. so, and I was like, wow. All right. He definitely does support me. So yeah, yeah. Like, in that generation of parent, like I assume that like, like if you and I had kids, like, you know, we're just a, a little bit, I, I don't want to say more evolved, but probably more emotionally evolved of generation. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So, like, so I don't think it would mean as much for us to tell our kids or, you know, our cats. We probably tell them all the time. Yeah, like I, yeah. I, I do not leave. I don't leave yeah, my house. It would be common. No, I don't leave my house without telling my cats I love them like six times. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Get the fuck out of here. we're done with exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah. So like, but like the my dad, the first show I did, uh, my dad was there and he shook my hand after I got on stage. My dad is probably shaking my hand three times. Uh, when I graduated college, when I moved out of the house, and I think that was just because he was happy that he was rid of me. <laughs> And then when I did stand up for the first time, you know, in front of him. So that's it. I, I can't imagine. I got my license. He didn't shake my hand. You know, nothing like that. So that's huge, man. Yeah. And and to me, that will always probably be my greatest accomplishment in comedy. I mean, like you said, you I, I did film a dry bar comedy special. I've had some other great opportunities that I've done along the way in comedy. But to me, that's nothing's going to top that. Now, you did the dry bar. Was that did you guys uh, shoot that in Minnesota? No, no, no. So they do all their filming in Utah. So they have oh, okay. a they have so. a studio. Yep, they have yeah. a studio in uh, Provo, Utah, where they film all of them. Now, how how long was comedy going at that time? I mean, I imagine Provo and Utah shut it down a little bit. Well, I think they were open because I, I, that's where this whole pandemic has been a real pain in the butt in America because it varies from state to state, you know, like in other countries, the mandates were like at a top level, you know what I mean? Like New Zealand 
everything they did, I mean, it wasn't like a state to state. It was like, we're the government. This is what we want to do. Blah, blah, blah. We'll help you out. Whatever it is, they took care of their stuff. Here, every state's different. So you don't know what state's doing what, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to say they opened up like maybe back in like in June, maybe they weren't closed very long or actually May. like the comedy club there opened up in May. But I'm not from there. So I live in Minnesota and it's we opened back up in like June. And then I think we were open until beginning of December. They shut things down again for a little bit. Now we're back open. But so what happened was I was actually originally supposed to film that in April and then the pandemic hit. And it just got postponed indefinitely. But then they, even though I think things were going in Utah, I think the dry bar, I think they waited a little bit to start back up. You know, they didn't start back up, I think, until the end of September doing the shooting. I'm sure they were cognizant of how it's going to look. And like if if they come back too early, are they going to be judged for coming back too early? So that makes sense. Not just that. I mean, I think they also had to figure out how they were going to work with, you know, even though they're open, a lot of places have reduced capacities. Yeah. You know, they're typically if you look at a lot of their their dry bar specials, they look like it looks like a theater. It's a beautiful and it is. It looks like, you know, I mean, it's a really nice space that they do the filming in, but they use theater style seating. There's, you know, two or three hundred people in the audience at these shows. Well, now they have to do a reduced capacity. And and like I said, I can't say this for sure because I'm not, you know, I'm just a comic that went and did a thing. But I kind of wonder if part of them taking their time opening up is them trying to figure out how they were going to overcome that obstacle of the audience. Right. How how that was going to look on film, how that was going to sound. So because when I did it, it was reduced capacity. They could only have 50 people in there for audience. And so I always kind of describe it is, you know, a lot of their specials look like it was shot in a theater. The one that I did with the audience, the way they were seated, it felt more like a comedy club. Was that a little I mean, because this is October, right? Yeah. Was that disheartening for you or really like? Fuck it. I just no, want to do the material. Absolutely not. Okay. I'm, I was just excited to be there. Okay. I mean, it's an opportunity. Like it was, a, it's an opportunity that I got to do. And I got, it was an experience. Like even honestly, if they look at the footage and they don't think it's worth putting out and it never releases, I'm still going to be happy and still be blessed that I got to do it. Yeah. They, they gave me an opportunity. I went and did the show. They treated me well. They treat all their talent like top notch. They're probably one of the nicest companies I've ever worked with in this industry. You know, every member of their staff was so nice. It was almost scary <laughs> how nice yeah. they were. You know, like, <laughs> It was like right on the borderline of being just too nice. <laughs> yeah, what do they want from me? Do they want yeah. an organ? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> but no, but no. So they were all, all the staff was great to work with in that capacity, you know. So, yeah. So I was just happy and blessed that I got to do it. I, I just I feel very thankful for it. And having the audience the way it was, you know, I just went and did the best I could do. And that's the thing with comedy right now. It's it's going to it's changing and it always changes you know not just you know like with the pandemic that's really changed things because now we do a lot of virtual comedy and there's social distancing which means uh, you know reduced capacities and venues which means smaller audiences and things like that but because of that i don't think it's going to go away you're still going to have like virtual comedy and 
people aren't going to be rushing to sit next to each other. Some places they will be, you know. But the other thing, like even with as social issues happen and and things like that, you know, material has to evolve. So it's like always evolving. So and that's just what what that is. You have to adapt, you know, and that's what that is to me. Am I bummed that I didn't get to do it in April? Absolutely. Because, you know, I had a lot of stuff booked and it all went away. Very disappointing. But I still got to do it, you know, and I'm very happy about that. So you went from South Dakota to San Diego? Yep. And then back to South Dakota for a while. And now I live in St. Paul. What's it like starting out in a new scene? Like I I came up through Binghamton and I'm still in Binghamton. So eventually eventually I'll move. But what's that like to do it over and over again? I compare it to like going to a new high school. <laughs> Makes sense. Of. Like, because, because I'm sure the drama is right there. It's equivalent to high school. It's like when you go to a new, if you, if you ever experienced this, when you go to a new high school, you don't know what's what. You don't know who the popular kid is, who the nerdy kid is, or who are the people you should stay away from. Comedy's kind of similar to that, where, you know, the hierarchy or whatever. And, you know, you've got like, as they, call them edgelord gatekeepers or you know these people shady you know or whatever it might be this person's really good to work with you should probably align yourselves with them or whatever so that's very that's how i compare it it's it's like moving to a new high school now when i moved from south dakota originally there wasn't really a comedy scene there there was a handful of us that did comedy at the time but there wasn't there was like one comedy club with one open mic monthly I started doing my own show in my town monthly and maybe a handful of other shows. So it wasn't like very strong. And the local comedy club, I don't feel like they were very supportive of local comics anyway. They ended up going out of business and they were very she was quick to ban people from performing if they, you know, if they performed within 45 miles of the club, even at an open mic, you know, like it sounds like, stupid, like, like the old, uh, Mitzi Shore stuff from like, like, yeah, Store, like very, very, very dumb, uh, especially and that. And to me, that's how you can tell that they're not trying to curate the talent and help them get better. Because if I was a business owner as a comedy club, I'd want the best possible performing going on at my club. So if a comic can get some other stage time to develop and get better at an open mic, you know, I'm not even talking about a book show where there's money being involved, just an open mic. She would, you know, ban people. And I, you know, she'd ban people if they signed up for the open mic and then had to back out last minute and just stupid things like that. So it's very negative. So the scene wasn't that big. So when I moved to San Diego, it didn't really feel like moving from one scene to another. At that point, I was really entering a scene. That was like a starting point for me. But it was still, you know, and I was so new to comedy. Like I was maybe six months into comedy. I didn't know anything about comedy, really. I mean, I thought I did. And then I went to San Diego and I went to a couple of their open mics just to watch before I even started performing. And I was just like, I don't know shit about comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Better get the notepad out. You need to learn some stuff. (laughs) And I, and I absolutely did. I mean, San Diego, I feel like that's where I developed the most as a comic. That's really where I grew. And that was my developmental period. I did a lot of experimenting with different things, but I also started producing shows out there. And I, you know, I helped start the San Diego Comedy Festival. I got really involved in their scene. That's how I I made myself noticed. You know, I was like, oh, I didn't understand politics of comedy and any of that stuff. And I've always been a do it yourself, go getter type person. So 
I've always believed you got to pave your own way. So I went in there and I got people's attention because I just went and started producing shows. Like, yeah. and some people were very territorial about it and kind of rub people, some people the wrong way, but the people ultimately that uh, over time, even some of those people ended up becoming good friends. You know, a lot of it is like, well, who's this guy? What's he, you know, get that attitude or whatever. But then once they get to know you, they're like, Oh, they're actually pretty, pretty cool. And they're doing good things for the scene. It's a scene. When you talk about a scene from city to city, it's a community. And every person that, you know, says that they're part of the scene represents that scene at some capacity. So if you're a total douchebag, you're making that scene look bad. Now, on the other spec end of that spectrum, if you're a super kind, nice person and funny and whatever, you're making that scene look really good. You know, and there's a lot of really good comics from San Diego now, just like, you know, blowing up all the time. But yeah, so I feel like you have to be part of that community. It's more than just a scene. It's a community. Well, I know that, for, you know, me, like I like I came in at, at 33 and most of the scene was like 27, 26, around mm-hmm. that, that age. And there are a couple of people older than me, but I was maybe fourth from dying. You know, like, like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I was up the, the top spectrum. And the only way I knew how to get stage time was to do it myself. And, you know, I wasn't good enough to get booked initially, but I'm like, fuck it. I want to, I want to get stage time. So what I did was I started producing shows and then I'd reach out and try to like, you know, break up the clicks and like mm-hmm. try to get people to work with everybody. And, you know, it was such a pie in the sky dream that everybody would coexist with everybody. It's never going to happen. But I wanted to be the guy who would book everybody. And I'm like, I don't give a shit what problems you have with someone over there. You're not working together, but I'll book both of you. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, gamble with the chemistry. Oh, yeah, that's I'm you know? the same in that but respect. Like, but like, I thought it was so foolish to have like four or five sections of a comedy scene as small like as Clinton is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when you have 25 people in the scene, you're like, well, what sense does that make for seven of them not to work with the other 18? Like, yeah. you're just you're cutting yourself <clears throat> short. And I didn't think it made any sense. But I know that in order for me to succeed and get the stage time I wanted, I was going to have to produce shows. So to put on a comedy festival, I'm with you. I mean, that's amazing stuff. And it's yeah. It sounds like a it sounds like hard work, but an easy way to, you know, ingratiate yourself with other people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think by the time I left San Diego, I mean, I'm sure there was some people that didn't respect me as a comic or a or producer or whatever. But the people who mattered did. And I'm still friends with a lot of them. I still, you know, I I can reach out to them and talk to them. I've made, you know, because of those connections, I've been able to get a lot of them to come do my podcast, you know, especially during the pandemic. And, you know, I've had people on like Dustin Nickerson, who he's kind of blowing up. He opened for a lot of clean comics or whatever. He just put out a special on Amazon Prime. I've had Zoltan on mine. He's another guy that's been all over the place. He's probably... One of the bigger uh, success stories, I suppose, from Drybar, like his videos have just like blown up because he was one of the he was one of the original. I think he's from season one, maybe season two, but he was one of the original Drybar specials. But yeah, like so, <clears throat> so I it's the art of bombing, and mm-hmm. I've listened to a couple of podcasts or a couple episodes, and I really like it. What impressed me is that your booking on it is like you're not getting like schlubs. Like you got Zach Dresch, but whatever. Like, yeah. well, I mean, to, I do. Like that's the everybody thing has to get to. Zach Dresch once. Yeah. I try to have a good range, though. That's the thing. Like, I'm not just after good 
celebrity comics. Like I'm not trying to be that podcast. I'm trying to learn because a lot of it is for me. I want to learn and everybody has a unique perspective and, and, and has different ways of doing things. And so even people I've had people on that have only been doing comedy for a couple of months or uh, less than a year. And I'm able to gain some insight from them and share my insight with them. But then I'm, same time, I'm able to have somebody on like I just had Mark Christopher Lawrence on who his list of TV and movie credits is too long to go through. I right, mean, he's right. been in everything, you know, so so it's good to have that range because then that's a different perspective as well. So what's your goal with that podcast? So, like, obviously, it's not just for comedians, but like, uh, I mean, it's the art of bombing. You, st- I don't know if you start off every episode. I've listened to Mark Christopher Lawrence and Caitlin Palufo. You know, obviously you have to get, and it's one of my questions too, but you know, what's your worst bomb or whatever? I mean, uh, is it just the entertainment factor that you're going for that, that question? Uh, no, the reason I start with that. So the ho- when I started the podcast, I had no idea what the plan was other than I wanted to see, I, I started realizing I had a really bad show or well, a show that I felt was really bad where I felt like I bombed really bad and I've told it all over the place. So I don't want to get into it because it's kind of a long story, but that's what inspired me to do the podcast that. And so I, I started realizing after that, I was talking to other comics and I started realizing that like, I felt like I was just a terrible comic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I maybe I shouldn't be doing comedy, that I'm not good because of this time I bombed. And then I started talking to other comics, and it was like something every comic did. And I realized, you know, I kind of wanted to start a podcast anyway, a comedy podcast, but I wanted it to be a little bit different. Like, sometimes this comes out to be a little, I don't know, condescending or if that's the right word or arrogant, but a lot of the comedy podcasts are the same it's usually you know a couple comedians interviewing a couple other comedians and they ask the same questions as every other podcast or whatever and that's fine i'm not saying it's good or bad or anything like that but i wanted because it goes back to my marketing i wanted something that was in the comedy genre but a different perspective. And one thing I noticed is there wasn't really at the time, you're seeing it pop up a lot more now. I've seen a lot more people talking about bombing. Uh, and I'd like to just put on the record, I am the OG. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whether whether I want to admit it or not, you are my inspiration. I, I, I mean, from, from a long time ago, uh, before I even started comedy, I'm like, you know what? This guy's got something. Maybe I should get into it. Uh, but yeah, so, so it was something I would, like I said, I wanted to put in a different perspective or, and, and that was something that wasn't being covered. So I was like, well, now I can talk to other people about it and it makes me feel better because then I don't feel alone. You know, I'm not the only one. I get to hear these stories. So when I first started it, that was pretty much the only emphasis. But then as I tried to improve the podcast and the point of it, you know, I started getting some feedback from people and they were like, wow, that was really, you know, what so-and-so said was really helpful, really insightful. And I never thought of that. And I realized that people started to, they were starting to get something out of it. They, there was value there other than the entertainment. And so then I started pushing my focus where I want to hear the story about bombing because it's entertaining and it's fun to talk about. But then on the backside of it, I try to have a few standard questions where I want to know what they learned from it. What yeah. what did they gain from it? So that's really what the focus is. It's, you know, and our tagline is finding success through failure. So it's looking at our failure, seeing what we did wrong, what we can learn from it, and then 
putting what we learn into the next performance to make that performance better. You know, uh, like I said, I've only listened to a couple episodes and it's so solid. And, and that's kind of, you know, I'll ask you this question soon, but like, like I love learning how long it took you to recover from something. And because mm-hmm. like we all go into a set thinking, Oh, we're going to be perfect. I'm going to kill like the audience. <laughs> I'm going to be great. And I've noticed that whenever I come in with that mindset, like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be great tonight. I fucking you overconfident. Tank. Yep. Yeah. I've definitely been there. <laughs> It's like it's like a trap that I will never fr- learn from at all. I'm like, okay, yeah. fuck it. And that's something too. Like that was a something that's evolved too. That you know, I used to a- I asked that question where I talk about the bumming of bombing, which you know I define as the dreadful feeling after you bomb. And I used to just ask, how does that affect you, or how long has it affected you? And then now, like as I've evolved with the podcast, and I see different levels of comedians, that a question actually has evolved into how does it affect you? And how has it changed as you progressed in comedy? Yeah. Because even for me, that feeling has progressed shows that I, you know, I might have bombed on when I was early in comedy at an open mic affected me a lot. But then now if I go to an open mic, and I don't do well, I don't care, I have different goals, I have an objective. So as long as I meet the objectives and accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish at an open mic, to me, it's not bombing. So it doesn't affect me. You know, so I started trying to talk about that, too. And I thought it was you also kind of interesting too to find out what people think when they're bombing on stage like what's going through your brain what's ticking and what 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 are your what's your next plan like you, when you tell a joke that doesn't work what you know what do you do after you panic <laughs> yeah, how do you recover how do you write the shit yeah, yeah how do you try to recover from it or you know or and at what point do you just give up when you're like well i'm just gonna power through because i know there's no getting out of this yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> try to salvage some fun out of it <clears throat> Yeah. So, so for me, it's, it's evolved into learning about that because it also, you know, with comedy and I don't really emphasize this or just like, I'm not like crystal clear about the mental health, but a lot of it is, it, it kind of revolves around mental health because, you know, obviously if you go do a show and you do crappy, you feel crappy about yourself. That's not good for your mental health, you know? And so talking about it, you know, I believe any kind of issues, you know, talking is important. You know, I, I myself, I don't go to therapy or anything, but I'm all about it, you know, but I do have people I can talk to. Like I have conversations when I'm down and I'm open about things. And, you know, so I talk about that stuff. So that's, Another aspect of it is the mental health side of comedy, where it's like a lot of dark stuff happens in comedy and it's healthy to talk about it because you can learn from it as well. Absolutely. No, I'm with you completely. Now, do you remember one of your worst sets? Uh, Oh, God, I have so many. I mean, yeah, (laughs) all the time. I mean, want to tell tell a story? I'm trying to think of. uh, Well, I have two stories like the one. It was bad, but it wasn't. I'll tell this one. I haven't told this one in a long time. So early on in my career, this is another moment where I thought about quitting comedy after the show. So early in my my comedy career, if you want to call it, it wasn't really a career then. I just started <laughs> doing comedy. I was still maybe three or four months into comedy. So yeah, uh, a booker, uh, another comic that I knew that was kind of doing comedy when I started, started producing his own shows. And I'm not going to say his name because he's got a real bad reputation now. And that was years ago. And But anyway, he was producing the show. He had this comic named Dwight York. And I don't know if anybody listening will know who that is. But if you don't, I would look him up. He is a one-liner comic and he's really good. Like he can do an hour of one-liners. It's 
crazy to watch him do his stuff. And he's got joke books with one-liners out too. Anyway, so he was headlining and another comic he booked as the uh, the MC and I was just doing a like a guest spot. And I don't remember if there was a feature on this show or not, to be honest, but I was just doing a guest spot. I was doing like 10 minutes, you know, and because I... At the time, I didn't have 10 minutes, probably, for one. Right, but I didn't you're not going to say no. And I definitely didn't have 10 good minutes. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> if I had 10 minutes, I probably had, like, three minutes that was good at, like, four months into comedy. Anyway, so I get to do this show. There's a lot of people there. Like, he ended up, and, and I don't know what happened there. I think he booked two shows, which was a weird thing, at two different venues within, like, the same area. But I don't not important to the story either way. So it was at this VFW, a friend of mine who owns a radio station. I had nothing to do with this at the time. It's just, he's a friend of mine, somebody I grew up with, but he owned a radio station and he ended up sponsoring the show. His radio station did. And he was part of the, the VFW or whatever organization it was. Either way, he promoted, helped promote the crap out of this show. So a lot of people were actually there and yeah, I went up and I did like 10 minutes and I, I don't think I got one laugh. I'm, I, oh, I, geez. I take that back. I got a couple of, uh, ha! but they were the laughs from the comic that was hosting the show. Yeah. Yeah. Laughing at me bombing. <laughs> the, the awkwardness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was laughing at how bad I was doing because he'd probably been there before. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. So I did like 10 minutes and I, I tried. And I probably I made the rookie mistake, obviously, of trying material that hadn't been tried before. It was like all new stuff. I like I bet I think one of my jokes was about like a redneck cell phone. And I don't even remember. I remember that was the the theme, but I don't remember what the joke was. It just had something to do with <laughs> so that redneck. Good. Yeah, that's how good it was. I, I remember something about having to do with a redneck cell phone or what it was and making fun of that or something. I don't know. But anyway, I just bomb for like 10 minutes and then i watched this comic go up and just you know for one he didn't struggle but you know how when you bomb when somebody on the show bombs there's yeah, a you little gotta more, dig out you gotta dig out a little bit whether so he definitely had to try to do that a little bit and then he did you know did fine he's a professional headliner did great with his his one-liners whatever so then after i, I remember having this conversation with my then girlfriend as we we're going home and I, like I said, I lived in another town, so I had like a two-hour drive from this show. As we're going home, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to quit comedy. I don't think this is it. You know, I'm not good. I don't think I can be good. What you know, she I say? tried it, and she basically said, don't give up yet. You know, oh, I will say that. Okay, she, good. She, she, was, yeah, she was pretty supportive in that way. I mean. <laughs> if she was like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> our history isn't the greatest now, but. Right. At that particular moment, that was one of the better moments <laughs> of that relationship. But yeah, she was like, "You shouldn't quit. It's it, you're you're giving up too easy, basically." And and yeah, and so then I I didn't, and now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> you made it onto this podcast, and obviously that's the goal of everybody. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but like, when did you get on stage the next time? Like, how long did oh, it take? Man. Well, it. Probably took a little while, not because I was afraid of going back on stage, but there just wasn't a, yeah. wasn't many opportunities where I was, you know, because that was the thing where I was in relationship to where there was some open mics and things that you could do. I had a full time job, 
most of that stuff happened during the week. It was a lot harder for me to drive to this open mic during the week and then drive two hours home so I could go to work. And I had a like a 25 mile commute to my job. So it was like, right. you know, to be to work at eight, my day started at five thirty, six o'clock. So it, it was real hard to do that. So what I started doing is producing my own shows. I, I talked to a, a bar a pub where I lived and and I was like, Hey, can we try this? And we did an open mic first. And I had when a bunch of my friends started dabbling in comedy too, like they even went and performed that same open mic as I did because they thought it would be fun. And so then I started this open mic and then they would come and do this open mic. And then sometimes we would, we were in the middle of uh, Sioux Falls and Fargo. So sometimes some people from Fargo would drop down. Some people from Sioux Falls would pop up to do the open mic. And then, but anyway, so we did this experiment, packed the place for this first open mic we did. They're like, oh, this is cool. So now we do, we're doing a monthly show. And what I did is I'd have an open mic and then I'd bring a regional headliner, you know, feature, well, more like a feature. I'd bring like right. a regional, regional feature to headline the show. And we'd basically give them the door and give them a hotel room. And so I did that monthly. So, so that was where I was getting, I was just creating my own stage time. And then I will say, that person that booked me for that other show, even though his history and comedy ended up being negatively impacted, he did give me some good opportunities for some guest spots and hosting and some of the stuff that he was trying to do. So I had some opportunity there too, but yeah. So honestly, I don't know how long it was just because there wasn't a lot of time, (laughs) but like, but as soon as you're there, I mean, do you feel like that last set, like you get a, you get your first laugh or two. Do you feel like that last set kind of like dripped away? Like, oh, no, no, this is this is this is fine. I am a good comedian. Like it, it really was just an off night. Uh, now, I think that way. Okay. At the time, I probably didn't. I was, you know, I was still probably questioning whether or not I was making the right decision. I will say this from the very first open mic I did. I have felt like comedy is what I what I'm supposed to do and what I want to do and i remember thinking that on stage i i remember them calling my name and i walked up on stage i put my hand on the mic stand i put my hand on the mic to take it out and i looked out into the audience and there was a lot of people that night there was like 60 to 70 people at this because like i said it was like a bringer contest or whatever so all the other comics local had people there uh i remember looking out into the audience and my first thought was like oh shit what did I get myself into? (laughs) Because I was very, very, very almost deathly afraid of public speaking. So now I'm like probably on the grasp of having a panic attack. And I took the mic out, moved the mic stand and probably stumbled over some words, finally got a joke out and it got a laugh, a little bit of a laugh. And I was just like, as soon as I got that laugh, I, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I was like, I got, okay, this is what I got to do. So, and then fast forward all the bad times. <laughs> right, right, right. We don't need, we don't need to dwell on those at all. We, they were yeah. like three or four good times. So we're good. But I will say part of the podcast too, with doing the podcast, I feel like I've really improved as, as a comic since I started looking more at failure. Yep. Then, you know, like, Early on in comedy, I tried to forget about those bad shows and I wasn't trying to take anything from them. It was more of trying to emulate and copy all the good shows and the good things that I did. And if how if a joke worked this way, you constantly do it that way or whatever and you don't try to evolve it. And so I would do okay. I'm sure I still had bad sets, but I do okay. And I wasn't really improving though. I was just doing 
okay. You know, wasn't necessarily the best comic, not necessarily the worst comic. I was just a comic. But I feel like as I started doing this podcast and looking at failure and being able to analyze it and, and learn from what other people do to analyze, I've improved a lot as a comic. But you're also in front of a microphone talking for an hour plus a week, at least. So I think yeah. whether it's on stage or, you know, in your office or whatever, your living room, then you're in front of a mic, you're espousing your views, you're you're trying to make mm-hmm. somebody else laugh. And, you know, it hits most time. Granted, we're one on one. So the joke's probably going to hit because we don't want to you know, we feel obligated to laugh, maybe. But like, you know, you have that confidence. And I think mm-hmm. that that definitely helps when you go, you know, whether it be a Zoom mic or you're out on stage doing a show or dry bar, or whatever. I think that's like a very underrated perk of doing a podcast. Oh, absolutely. Is. It's anything that you do that involves performing, whatever it might be, people need to. That's another thing you see with comics. There's so many like comedians that are like purists, if you will, where they're like stand ups. The only way the only way you're going to get better at comedy is if you're doing comedy. You got to hit every open mic. Every day, you got to go to all five of them. Well, you're not experiencing life, but there's also other ways to get better at comedy. Right. You know, taking improv classes or taking a writing class or having a podcast, having these conversations, you know, like you said, it's all part of performing. And they all, even though they're not the same, they're all related and they're like uh, extensions of one thing that definitely help you get better. I mean, I feel like that that's also helped me on stage being more conversational because of doing my podcast and having conversations like this. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, I mean, because you can gain you can gain a chemistry with, you know, with people that you don't know. Like right now we're having a good conversation. We just met today. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's that's a skill because I'm sure like me, you know, doing a podcast, I'm sure you've had guests on here that weren't great because there was no you did, couldn't get any chemistry. E- even people I know. And like I've, I've been in a car with or I've done shows with it's like this is very easy. And I don't know if it's because you're a host or because you're a better conversationalist or whatever. But it's like it, we don't need to know each other. But you've come in prepared. You know what the the deal is, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a like, skill set. Okay, yeah. We're going we're gonna to be conversational. We're going to be vulnerable to a point uh, and forthright with information that maybe this will be good for a segue or something like that. Or we can talk mm-hmm. about something else. So when you're when you have a guest who's really stiff. That's hard work. That's like dealing with the a, a cold crowd all night. Oh, absolutely. Yes. But that's the thing. Like now I can take this skill set, not just being a guest, but like it when I host my podcast and being able to have conversations with strangers, I can take that and apply that to my performance on stage because now I'm used to talking to strangers, at, whether it be in person or uh, online through the podcast that I'm not nervous. Like when I, like I said, when I first started comedy, I was very nervous and had a lot of fears of public speaking that I overcame and now i'm not ever hardly nervous about performing i mean the only times i get super nervous is if the performance matters you know right right. like when i did dry bar i was very nervous about you know for the most of the day i was not but then right before it was time to perform i got really nervous (laughs) but which is good though i feel like it's a good thing yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's good to be no, uh, nervous a little bit because then it you're not being overconfident, you know? Right. But for the most part, I don't really get nervous now before I go on stage. And that's that's something that I gained from doing this. And so it's like you can gain so much from doing more than just performing stand up. 
and writing stand up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, but that's that's one of my favorite parts about this podcast is, is you know, getting to meet new people and kind of like like testing my skill as an interviewer. Like I was a journalist and OK, now I can transition what I used to do for, you know, a lot, not a lot of money, but in comparison <laughs> to a lot more money yeah. uh, than doing this. And and I, I think there's I like the challenge of it, too. And mm-hmm. we're going to wrap up soon, but, but I appreciate you doing this because, you know, you're obviously been doing the podcast for like, what, four years, something like that. Yep. It'll be four years in May. Right. And, and it obviously shows in the way you handle yourself and everything. It's, it's just very, very easy. So, mm-hmm. um, I just, I wish, listen, here's a compliment. I wish everybody was as good as you. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I like I gave you a compliment, but I did it in the most sarcastic voice ever. I, I don't know you, why. Like, I got a compliment, <laughs> but I'm going to be so condescending about it. So it's very passive aggressive. And it, and it was legitimately, <laughs> that might be the nicest I can ever be to somebody. And I disguised it as some <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm embarrassed for myself. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I will take the compliment. And I, yeah, thank you. I, I've worked on it. It's, it's yeah, like you said, a lot of work has went into it. And that's something that I, th- I feel like a lot of comedians forget that, you know, they always talk about the grind. But do you know what the grind is? You know what I mean? Like, how do you define the grind? It's a lot of hard work. And it's not, like I said, not just being on stage. It's other things like, you know. Like I said, going back to the business side of things, it's about building a brand and, you know, establishing that. And there's marketing and there's so many other elements into comedy that you have to think about. And that's all stuff that had I not started my podcast, I probably wouldn't think about, you know, because it just put me in that mindset. Because I also believe, always believe that there's, you can constantly, you should be constantly trying to evolve. Like there's, Continuous improvement is one of the biggest things we need to think about because we can always improve, we can always get better, and we no matter how how much we think we know, we're never going to know everything. And there's always somebody out there with a different perspective on that that can give you insight if you're willing to listen. And you know, and that's another lesson I've learned from the podcast. Like because like I said, I've had guests on that have barely been doing comedy but there was something that they did to analyze their sets and i'm like wow how come i haven't thought of that you know like that's really intense you know well dude i'm gonna let you go but uh again thank you so much for doing this uh it's a whole lot of fun meeting you and talking to you and uh do you have anything to promote i mean i know the dry bar is coming up eventually i mean yeah i got my my podcast i guess but uh i will say too real quick i just want to throw this in we were talking about changing comedy scenes earlier and the communities and stuff and we really we got derailed from where we were going because i stopped at san diego but i will say when i moved back from san diego to south dakota there was more of a scene there and south dakota's scene is one of the best scenes because they're one of the most supportive of each other you know we're all friends when I was there, we would hang out, not just do comedy. We would go to movies. We would go out to lunch, do you know fun things or whatever. And we're always trying to help each other show. It wasn't like they're not being competitive like, oh, I have to be the best comic. I mean, obviously, right. we're all trying to be comics. But if, say, Zach, who we talked about at the beginning of the show, just does it, he's doing a show. If there's nothing else going on comedy-wise in town, I guarantee you a lot of comics are going to go to his show and hang out. You know, and the same with Zach. So it was it's very supportive. I think that's very important with comedy that if you want to grow, even if you want to grow as a comic, it's important to to uh, grow together. You know, I mean, you're going to get better if you have a team. 
If a lot of people Definitely. think comedy is a, a singular thing because you're worried about your career, but it's really not. It's a team effort. It takes a team to, to win. Yeah, you need a supporting cast. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so with that, you can find all everything about me. I got my website, danbooblitz.com, and that is B-U-B-L-I-T-Z, not B-O-O-B-L-I-T-Z, like <laughs> most people probably think. Uh, and, and all my social media, you can find it there. Otherwise it's D Booblets comedy on all platforms. Uh, and then the art of bombing podcast at art and art bombing pod on all social media platforms. Have you done this before? <laughs> I mean, like, like that is as rehearsed as it could be. That's impressive. I sat back yeah. and watched it. I'm like, okay, here we go. This guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, I've been doing my podcast for, like I said, almost four years, but I just started just in the last few weeks. It's really weird. There was like an influx of people that have reached out to me about being on their podcasts and stuff. So it's I've really been in the, that that mode where I'm like, I know what I got to say when they ask for me. <laughs> stuff. Practice. Hey, practice makes perfect. <laughs> you weren't lying, man. But again, man, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you in a bit. Sounds good. I'm peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I, I hope they let me in.